Take your copy of God's Word, please, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. We'll be thinking today about the Lord's Supper. Uh, twice a year on Sunday morning, we observe the Lord's Supper. The Bible does not tell us how often we are to observe it. Uh, we could have it every Sunday. We could have it every day. Uh, but it does say as often as you drink this bread and take this cu- drink this cup and eat this bread. And so we are to do it regularly. But also the Bible says how we are to do it. And that's what we're going to look at today. So if you found 1 Corinthians 11, stand please as we show our respect for the reading of God's word. And this is the word of the living God, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. This is the word of the Lord. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. You may be seated. You know, there are two parts of the Bible. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are two offices in the Baptist church, and these are not offices with ecclesiastical power. These are servant offices. They're the office of the pastor shepherd, and there's the office of the deacon. And there are two ordinances in the Baptist church. We've observed one ordinance already. We've seen the ordinance of baptism, and it is an ordinance. There's a difference between an ordinance and a commandment. An ordinance is something that God ordained us to do, and we must do it. And baptism is a must. Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel. When people are converted and discipled, baptize them. So that is a must. But then the other thing is the observance of the Lord's Supper. And of all the churches in the New Testament, the most problematic was the church at Corinth. 
They had so very many problems, and Paul was saying to them, I cannot praise you even in the way you observe the Lord's Supper. Corinth was a very wealthy town, and in that wealthy town there were two classes of people. There were the people who were uh, wealthy beyond measure. A lot of rich merchants were there. Uh, Some of them may have been Christians at this time. The majority of the Christians in the church at Corinth were very poor. And what was happening is when they were observing the Lord's Supper, instead of them coming and sharing a common table together, they were bringing their own food. And the people who were wealthy would gather and they would eat among themselves. And some of them would even bring wine and get drunk at the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, you need to be very, very careful. In fact, Paul says, the reason some people in your church are sick and weak and the reason some of them have already died is because they did not use care in observing the Lord's Supper. Now, that's how serious Paul said it was. And I want you to tell you, God does not change, beloved. When we come to the Lord's table, uh, we ought to come in reverence and holiness and in awe of his grace and mercy and love. But also, we need to understand he is a God of righteousness. And the Lord's table is a time when we are given strict instructions. In fact, Paul said, I'm going to tell you about this now. He said, everything else, the divisions and all that, I'll set in order when I come. But he said, this is what the Lord, did you get that? He said, this is what the Lord gave me. It says it very plainly there in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. Paul said, this is not an oral tradition of the church. This is a direct commandment of God. Now, basically, very simply, he says, when we come to the Lord's table, we are to take three views from the table. First of all, uh, we look backward. I love what J. Allen Blair says. He says the Lord's table is like a picture in the sense that our Savior is absent at the present time. Uh, I don't go to a lot of big banquets. Uh, uh, I I go to, uh, sometimes I go to after rehearsal parties, and I guess that's the closest thing I go to on a regular basis that's a big banquet and usually after we're done eating at the wedding rehearsal somebody gets up and they'll start to make a speech or start to make a toast and most of the banquets I've been to they don't do that but a lot of times at a wedding banquet they'll do that and so uh, someone stands there and usually the first person to stand is the guy that paid for it and I think that's only natural he paid for it he wants to say something Uh, he, he fed you he ought to have the right to say a few things and And especially at a wedding, he wants to wish the bride and groom well. And most of the time, that's what happens. Uh, But you'll notice at the table today, when we are seated at the table, there is no one standing. And that is because this is not the table of Brother Mike Shaw. This is not the table of the First Baptist Church of Pelham. This is the table of the Lord. The unleavened bread represents his body. The fruit of the vine represents his shed blood. He is our host. We are his guests. He is here in spirit, but there is no visible presence. But there will come a day, praise his name, when all of God's children of all ages will be seated down together at a great banquet feast up in heaven, the wedding supper of the Lamb, and the Lamb himself will stand at the table and we'll recognize him, we'll know him, because when we see him, we'll be like him. And until that day, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're to anticipate that. So very quickly this morning, there are three looks. First of all, a look backward. Paul says, you proclaim the Lord's death. And so we're going to look a long way back, 2,000 years back 
to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what this meal commemorates. And it is not a memorial. Uh, it is a commemoration. We remember what he did. If it, if it was a memorial, he'd still be dead. But I want to tell you, we don't do this because he's still dead. We do it because he's alive. And when we believe in him, we also are made alive. But we look back a long time ago to his death, burial, and resurrection. And we celebrate that this morning. But we also look back to the time when we were converted. I hope as I say that, you can think of a place. I, I know that you know what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about a cornfield in Walker County on a Friday night in July 1964 when a 16-year-old lost church member went to a campfire service. And there was no preaching, but there was singing and words of a song pierced my heart and the Holy Spirit convicted me. And I was so unworthy. I was in an old cornfield. The corn had already been picked that year. And there were still some stalks standing around, but we had cleared off a place there. And I remember getting on my knees, and I remember getting on my face, and I remember taking my finger and digging a little trench in that cornfield, putting my nose down because I felt like I was the most unworthy person on the face of the earth. I knew I was a sinner. I was broken because of that. And at that moment, I repented of my sins. I admitted it to God. I asked forgiveness, and I trusted. I had known about Jesus all my life. But in that divine moment, I came to know him personally and in reality and in forgiveness and restoration of, and, and reconciliation to God for my sins. So I think about his death and burial and resurrection a long time ago, and I think about 1964, uh, which has not been quite that long. Uh, I was 16 years old, and I remember that night. I'll never forget that night. I hope it's vivid to you. You may not remember the date. You may not even remember the place. You may have been a young child. My wife was nine years of age. She does not remember how she was saved, but she knows she was saved. That's the important thing. And so we take a look backward to his death, burial, and resurrection and to our conversion. But then we take a look inward. He says a man ought to examine himself. Everyone is welcome at this table. We will not refuse service to anyone today, uh, to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table. But the Bible says a man ought to examine himself. Don't look around. Uh, husband, don't look at your wife. Wife, don't look at your husband. Uh, we're to look inside ourselves. What are the questions we need to ask? First of all, am I truly saved? You say, well, you just said that. Well, I want to say it again because that's the most important question in life. It doesn't matter if you're a Baptist or not. You say, what, preacher, you're a Baptist? You're the president of the Alabama Baptist State Convention, and you're saying it doesn't matter if you're a Baptist or not. There are going to be a lot of Baptists who will spend eternity in hell. You say, well, preacher, why do you say that? Because Jesus said it. Jesus said, many will say to me in that day, did we not speak in your name and your name do wonderful works? And he's going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Uh, I'd hate to think that somebody seated in this sanctuary today will one day stand before Jesus and say, well, open the door, Lord, I want to come in. And the Lord look at you and say, well, I don't know you. And you say, well, Brother Mike was my pastor. He had a doctor's degree. He'd been preaching since he was 17 years old. He ought to have known what he's doing. I was a member of his church. And the Lord will say, didn't you listen to what he said the day y'all celebrated the Lord's Supper? And he said, make sure you're truly saved. Listen, that passage in Matthew makes my blood run cold to think that I could preach to people and they'd hear the gospel and I wouldn't make it plain enough. I want to tell you this. You want to know how you're saved? 
is your life changed? That's it right there. We had the opportunity last week to visit the Billy Graham Library, and I want to tell you, there were three things that just struck me as we walked through the grounds of that library. First of all, it was his humility. You don't see a lot about Billy Graham on the grounds of that library, but you see a whole lot about Jesus. You see a whole lot of God's Word. In fact, when you walk into the library, it's in a barn that they built because Billy Graham was raised on a dairy farm and he milked cows for many years. And that's how he says he learned to put a team together. You know, if you just thought, well, he met up with George Beverly Shea and met up with Cliff Barris and met up with the Wilson brothers. No, he watched his dad put a team together on the dairy farm uh, to feed the cows, to milk the cows, to milk, to, to take the milk and make butter and buttermilk and then to deliver the milk to homes there in Charlotte. That's how his daddy made his living. And Billy Graham learned from him how to put a team together. That's why his teams have always been effective. But we learned about his humility. He doesn't really want anything on that place that glorifies him. He wants it to glorify Jesus. We also learned more about his integrity. You realize he is one minister who has ministered. He's 90, he'll be 94 years old in November, and you've never heard a taint of scandal on Billy Graham. He has integrity, his humility, his integrity, and thirdly, his focus. When you walk in that building, you literally walk in by the foot of the cross. When you stand at the place where his wife's already buried and he's going to be buried someday, you're standing at the foot of another cross. As you walk through the building, you're presented with the gospel, and at the end of your tour, even if you're the president of the Alabama Baptist State Convention and you're pastor of the First Baptist Church of Pelham, they give you a decision card. You say, were you offended by that? Absolutely not. If you have true salvation and you know you have true salvation, you want everybody to have true salvation. And if you have true salvation and you don't want everybody to have true salvation, you better make sure you have true salvation. Because the first thing that happens when you really get saved is you become concerned about others. Am I truly saved? Do I have unconfessed sins in my life? Now, none of us here today are worthy to take the Lord's Supper. I'll be the first to say it. I don't care how righteous you are. I don't care how many good deeds you've done this week. And we had a lot of folks work very hard this week in that missions yard sale. I mean, we had people working at night, early in the morning, and, and, and I want to tell you, if you want to see a, a, a beautiful job of teamwork, uh, come and volunteer for that sometime. And people smiling and laughing. You know, when you serve the Lord, you have a good time, don't you? I mean, it really is. You're with brothers and sisters, and you're sharing the gospel with people, even at a yard sale. But you know, you can do that and have unconfessed sin in your life. I hope today you've examined your heart. None of us are worthy to take the Lord's Supper but we are to take it in a worthy manner. That means we look at him exalted and we look at ourselves the way we truly are, not with blinders. Do I have unconfessed sins in my life? And let me just say this right here. I probably should have put this in. Do I have a grudge against anybody? You say, why are you talking about that? Well, Jesus said when we pray, we are to say, Father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And the Bible has a whole lot to say about forgiveness. In fact, the Bible has a whole lot to say about reconciliation. Jesus said, if you go to the altar to bring a gift to God and you have ought against your brother, he doesn't say go ahead and leave your gift at the altar because God needs it. You see, I want to tell you this. God could care less about what we give him unless we're giving it to him in the right spirit. 
You might give the Lord a million dollars, but if you have an ugly, hateful spirit and you've got a grudge in your heart, you'd be better off not to give it at all. You'd be better off to lay it down and say, I'm going to get right with that person. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, Brother Mike, you don't know what that person did to me. How can you stand up there in that pulpit and tell me I have to forgive them? I'll tell you why you have to forgive them, because the first word from the cross was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And whatever they did to you was not anywhere nearly as bad as what they did to Jesus. And he forgave them anyway, because he loved them. And if you love people, you'll forgive them. Do yourself a favor and forgive somebody. You know what it's like to hold a grudge? I don't know who said this first, but boy, it's a beautiful picture. Holding a grudge against somebody is you drink poison and pray that somebody else dies. Some of you say, well, they know I've got a grudge against them. Well, they probably don't care. They could care less whether you have a grudge against them or not. Listen, lay it down this morning. Lay it down before you come to the table. You say, I have to come to the altar, lay it down. No, you can lay it down right now. You say, I forgive them. You can, if you want to say it out loud, just say, I forgive them. You want to say it in your heart, say, I forgive them. But do it. Don't leave here with an unconfessed sin of unforgiveness towards somebody else on your heart today. Am I serving Christ faithfully? And notice the word serving there. Because that's what we are. We are to be servants. Jesus said, he who would be great among you must be the servant of all. We need more servant leaders in our church. Am I growing as a disciple? Are there things that I'm learning? Am I reading my Bible? Am I learning things from the Word of God? Is the Holy Spirit leading me deeper and deeper as I get older and older? And then this question, am I ready to meet God? You say, are you trying to scare us? No, I'm just being honest with you. In this last year, and I don't know, if, I know I'm older than I've ever been. I mean, you don't have to remind me of that. When I tell you this, don't say, well, just because you're so old, preacher, there's not that many people younger than you anymore. I have buried more people this year younger than I am than I have that's older than I am. Some of you older people go, that's good. You won't get to bury me. I probably won't. I'm not worried about it, but I want to tell you this. I'd be a fool not to be ready to meet God because I don't know when I'm going to go home. I'm going to go when he calls me. He, he already knows when that is. Are you afraid of death, preacher? Absolutely not. Death holds no terror for me. Mary and I are going to sing a song tonight we used to sing many years ago. The name of it is Jesus Will Outshine Them All, old, old gospel song. We used to sing it all over the state and People would ask us to come to these little country churches and we'd sing that together. We hadn't sung it in a long time. And it glorifies Jesus Christ because it says Jesus is going to outshine them all in heaven. But you know what? There's a line in that song that talks about the reunions we have with our loved ones. And I have a lot of loved ones. This past week, two of the dearest friends I, I've ever had, we remembered the anniversaries of their death this past week. One of them was a brother in Christ that I went to church with in the nursery. I went to high school with him. I went to college with him. We roomed together in seminary one year. And he was taken far too soon, in my opinion. God doesn't make any mistakes. He didn't expect to go like he went. Some of you knew who that was, Brother Mike Todd like a brother to me. The other man, I'll just tell you, was Troy Smith. 
you know, there, I, don't, I don't know that we've ever had a young man make as big an impact on this church as Troy Smith did, and still makes. I'm looking forward to seeing them. But back in those days when we sang that song, my mom and daddy, Mary's mom and daddy were still here. They're all in heaven now. But I want to tell you this, as much as I long to see my friends and my family in heaven, Jesus still outshines them all, amen. Are you ready? If you love Jesus and you have no unconfessed sin in your life, you're ready to go. You know, I, I'm not anxious to be on the next load, but my bags are packed, and if he calls me, I'm going to go. <laughs> By the way, if your bags aren't packed and he calls you, you're still going to go. Uh, you don't want to go that way, but you're still going to go. Uh, when he calls you, you're going to go. Or am I ready to meet? And then last word. Last look is a look upward until he comes. I want to tell you, I'm, I'm not one bit discouraged. I'm not one bit depressed. I'm not one bit worried about the future. You say, well, wait a minute, preacher. We got all these things. Obamacare. You know, I, you know, man, that, you can say that really good. You really sound like, whoa, is Obamacare when you say that. Well, guess what? I get to go on it next year whether it passes or not. I'm 65, and I get that wonderful Medicare with the donut. Now, I want to tell you, if it was a Krispy Kreme, that'd be all right, but it, it's not. You say, what's a donut? That's when they just suck money out of you like a vacuum cleaner when you're an old man or an old woman. That's not good. You say, are you worried about that? No, I'm not worried about that. I'm not one bit because, you see, the darker it gets down here on earth, the closer we come to his return. In the last days, perilous times shall come. Well, brother, if these aren't perilous times, I've never seen any. And I want to tell you, just any moment, just any moment, there may be a trumpet sounding. Patrick, it won't be Reveille, son. You'll get up, but you won't have to get up from your bed. You'll just get up and go up. Amen. I tell you what, you say, I like to sleep late night. When that trumpet sounds, you won't. Man, you'll be, I'm, I'm ready to go. And man, just think about meeting Jesus in the air. I love that. Uh, what a wonderful day that's going to be. I'm excited about the future. I'm not discouraged. You say, well, aren't you concerned about that? I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to spend 40 days in prayer. I may do 40 days fasting before this election if God leads me to do it. I think it's that. But I'm not worried about it. Why? Because I've read the back of the book. Guess what happens in the back of the book? We're walking down golden streets. We're walking by the river of life. Man, you know what? You can drink out of the river of life. You can jump in and swim in the river of life if you want to. And by the way, there are trees on each side of that river called the tree of life. And every month there's a fruit there. And what Adam and Eve were not allowed to do, we're allowed to do. We're allowed to pick that fruit from the tree of life and eat it. But the main thing is we'll see God face to face. That is an exciting opportunity. Oh, how I long to see my Savior's face. An old song says, I shall know him, I shall know him by the prince of the nails in his hand. And we will. Are you ready for Jesus to come? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? In just a moment, we're going to take communion. Again, this communion won't save you, but I would encourage every believer. You say, preacher, I've got unconfessed sin in my life. Confess it.